discussing a lot about the nature of religious piety as, a, as, as seen in the world as religiosity, as the practice of, of advancing spiritually, and mankind's difficulty in, in understanding what is truly spiritual. So therefore we have these sectarian views and generally if we look at the sectarian views that men hold in relationship to their religious practice, it is just that. It's in relationship <coughs> to their religious practice. We do this and you do that. Well, if you do that, that can't be spiritual. We come over from a, a foreign land into this land, and we tell the tell the uh, the natives of this land, "Well, your worship is not wholesome. You need to accept Jesus into your life. To see the supreme in the environment, that's a very backwards way of of, of religiosity." It's funny because we note in Srimad Bhagavatam. Which, we, which is basically giving the highest theistic conception that at the end of Srimad Bhagavatam, I believe it's in the 12th canto, uh, there's discussion of, of seeing the Supreme in the environment and taking direction from the environment for one's spiritual life. Of course, that's a high level of, of realization to begin with, to be able to commune with nature. Now I know that there's a lot of people that, that they say we're communing with nature and, and because of that we're, you know, we're religious people, but unfortunately they generally don't have any direction. So when they, uh, when they break down and, and worship a, a tree, how do we as aspiring spiritualists separate the wheat from the chaff? That's really the question at hand. That's what I'm trying to get across, is, is we, need to, we need to be able to understand and separate religious doctrine from self-realization. Does that mean we just run amok and we make up our own religion and we... We make up our own rules and regulations because we see that in the world of man, the rules and regulations break us apart into different sects. And basically at the highest level, as the author was speaking of, there comes a level in our spiritual advancement where the preliminaries are not really necessary. They're not necessary. But you'll notice that the great sadhus, they never give up the preliminaries because Krishna, because the Supreme Lord, gives good direction in Bhagavad Gita. What does he say? Whatever truly great men do in society, other men follow. Even though there is certainly a stage that one will reach when they're sincere in pursuing self-realization, that will free them from all encumbrance on the material plane 
you'll see that they still never give up the common decency of the true principles of religion. What are those? Truthfulness, cleanliness, austerity, and mercy. These are the, the pillars of every religious practice. No matter If we look at all the various religions of the world, they may define these different characteristics and put them into their own nomenclature. Their truthfulness may be different from another sect's truthfulness. Their mercy may be different. We have certain people, I forget what they're called in India, maybe you've seen in India there's a class of spiritualists that they wear a white mask on their face. Now in wearing that white mask, they want to practice ahimsa, nonviolence. So much so that they don't want to inhale another living entity and kill it in taking their breath that keeps them alive. Have you ever seen these pictures? Of these? Well, I forget what they're called. There is a class of people, religious in India specifically, and, and they, they actually cover their mouths. You'll see they're wearing like a, a surgical mask all the time. Not just when the pollution's high in downtown L.A. or, or Japan or something, you know. She said they were Jains. Jains? Yeah, they're Okay. So that's their conception. Their mercy is that deep. We would consider such a practice to be impractical, would we not? Who's going to go, I mean, how can you live, go through your life with a mask over your face the whole time? And the fact of the matter is, just walking from, from one end of the room to the other, you're killing living entities. What do they do when they have to go from here to there? The principle is there. They're trying to get a point across. That's commendable. So we notice also in the practice of that's presented by Krishna in Bhagavad Gita, and also that practice that the bona fide spiritual master gives to his disciple, there are religious rules and regulations. And they may differ from sect to sect, even within one tradition, because the tradition has presented according to the environment. So we may find that in India, as we mentioned on Sunday, what? You will not find women on altars in India because the culture over there is such that the women are not considered to have the qualification. Now, our spiritual master in bringing Krishna consciousness to the Western world said, well, that just doesn't, that will not fly in this society. And truthfully, especially in Kali Yuga, these class distinctions and these distinctions between uh, you know, women and men, they're not there in society anymore, are they? So therefore, the bona fide spiritual master, he makes adjustments. But you'll see the traditionists will argue the point, will they not? They'll always come and, look, you're letting the whole religion go to hell. Just see. You're letting the women do this. Or you're allowing people who uh, are engaged in same-sex relationships to practice the religion. That can't be allowed. My gosh. 
there's always these sides. Here we're going to try to present in this environment always, and if as much as we can, we follow in the spirit of our tradition. And we develop principles of religion that are based on the precepts of truthfulness, cleanliness, austerity, and mercy. And we perform some ritual. And we chant some mantras. These mantras may be, may be foreign to, to this culture. But the great acharyas, the sadhus, they know that there is some deeper significance. And that even we don't, even that we can't pronounce them, per, pronounce them perfectly, they are so spiritually potent. This language of the gods, Sanskrit, is so spiritually potent, it does have effect. And those that have been coming here now for two, three years, don't you notice this chanting? It, it has some effect. There's some significance. Shaito Dharpa, the Marjana, And you notice when the devotees speak and they quote these lines from Bhagavad Gita, there's some very there's something mystical happening there. It's actually having an effect. So in the beginning we may not recognize that, but uh, the recognition will come. So speaking of chanting, we're going to chant a little bit more, and then we'll discuss a little Bhagavad Gita. So Bhagavad Gita, we're going to study the sixth chapter and verse six tonight. For one who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But for one who has failed to do so, his mind will remain the greatest enemy. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual master has opened my eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. It's kind of hard to get uh, a grasp on a verse like this because in modern society we don't see many of ex examples of people who control the mind. It's uh, pretty far in between to actually... I mean, before I came into contact with this Krishna consciousness movement and actually met the, uh, the devotees, maybe I, a couple yogis read a couple books by this one and that one. Uh, actually, the whole concept of, of control of the mind and senses in, the West, in Western society is, is, for the most part, unheard of. I mean, you don't hear Oprah talking about let's get our minds and senses under control so that we can live a more wholesome and enjoyable life. She has so many other formulas, but generally control of the mind and the senses is, is not there, at least in a direct form as it's presented in Bhagavad Gita. When Krishna speaks here, and he repeats himself, does he not? In two verses. Hmm. The verse before this, one must 
deliver himself with the help of his mind and not degrade himself. The mind is the friend of the conditioned soul and his enemy as well. And then the verse we just chanted. For him who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But for one who has failed to do so, the mind will remain the greatest enemy. And then, a third time, and you'll notice that in, in Vedic knowledge, they repeat three times. That means this is important. For one who has conquered the mind, the super soul is already reached. For he has attained tranquility. To such a man, happiness and distress, heat and cold, honor and dishonor, are all the same. A person is said to be established in self-realization. It's called a yogi or mystic when he is fully satisfied by virtue, virtue of acquired knowledge and realization. Such a person is situated in transcendence and is self-controlled. He sees everything, whether it be pebbles, stones, or gold, as the same. Anybody have that vision? Pebble, stone, or gold, all on the equal level? I mean, that really takes, to, to come to that level of, of existence in the world where we're truly tranquil, we're truly satisfied with whatever comes on the material plane. There's no hankering, there's no lamentation. The mind that is uncontrolled is continually doing what? It's hankering and lamenting. It's desiring to have something, and then when it doesn't get it, it laments. Oh, it didn't get it. Even when it gets what it wants, we give the mind. It finally, providence arranges things. Well, so the Supreme arranges things. He finally relents to our nagging desire, just like a parent. Can only take it so long and then, all right, whatever I have to do to, what do we say? I don't want to say. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get that way, don't we? <coughs> we just have, we just relent. Okay, you want that that bad. You want it that bad. Now I realize that if I give you the candy bar, you'll be happy, but then the sugar rush will run, will, will, uh, I'll have to tolerate the sugar rush and then, Eventually, it will diminish and you'll want again. So, similarly, the Supreme, sometimes we just nag the Supreme Lord to death to get what we want in life, and He knows that it ultimately it will never satisfy us. But we perform our religious rituals and we, we try to attain uh, certain things. And based on the influence of the environment upon us, and we will learn in Bhagavad Gita about three primary distinctive influences. The mode of goodness, the mode of passion, and the mode of ignorance. And based upon our birth in the world, we're influenced in one way or another, to one degree or another, by these modes of material nature. And we find in the environment that none of these modes is independent of the influence of another. You'll never find somebody that's in pure goodness. It'll always be tinged with a little passion and deliverance. You won't find somebody in pure passion. There'll be a little tinge of, of, of goodness. 
for ignorance. And what even in, in ignorance, they also can be influenced by passion and goodness. What platform to come to in our consciousness where we become satisfied irrespective of those influences? What consciousness? How do we come to that? Now here Krishna is giving some indication. Well, we must do that, and a lot of people do that by the practice of yoga. And yoga has how many divisions of different types of yogic practice? And again, the yoga spoken of here is spoken of by Krishna 5,000 years ago. And we would be hard-pressed to equate what the current definition of yoga is with the definition that's being referred to here in Bhagavad Gita of actually controlling the mind and senses. So yoga in the modern era, for the most part, this isn't the objective. That isn't to say there aren't some yoga, yogic practitioners that are actually trying to follow strict astanga practice. But for the most part, it, it's, it's not, not practiced so much at that high a level. So then the question comes to us in this chapter where Krishna has gone from, in the last chapter, karma yoga. We, we control our works. And now Krishna's coming, okay, so if you can control your works, if you can work in goodness, and if you can work what? Niskarma, karma yoga. Karma yoga, yoga means what? Karma, our activity. Yoga, to yoke up, to come together with the supreme, to come together with, with our transcendental nature. And niskarma, so we add this, this karma, karma, yoga. Karma, yoga can just be to, to better ourselves in the world. So we do what? Good karma, yoga. But what Krishna recommends, and what he recommended in the last chapter of Bhagavad Gita, was what? That we work in karma, yoga, without any attachment to the fruit. That we give everything to our spiritual nature, that we give everything to the Supreme. Yatkaroshi yarashnosi yashjahosi didasiyat yatapasyastikante yatatparushwadman arpadam. All that you do, all that you eat, all that you offer and give away, do that as an offering to the Supreme. Don't simply live in the world in such a way that the world will bind you through your activity live with detachment to the fruit. So now in this chapter, Jnana Yoga, Krishna's going to the next level. Now let's, let's talk about what's really the thing to be controlled. And here in the very beginning of the chapter, he gives firm indication. You have to get your mind under control. You can do all the karma yoga you want but the mind is the controlling force. Our activities have to be dictated from a purified platform, from the pure mind. A transcendentalist 
should always engage his body, mind, and self in the relationship with, with the Supreme. He should live alone in a secluded place and should always carefully control his mind. He should be free from desires and feelings of possessiveness. How do you do that in this modern age? Live in a cave. You want to move in? <laughs> no. Who that wants would, to do that? Who, practically speaking, who can't do that? Well, you have to. You would have to recognize the false ego. Recognize the identification with the false ego and remove yourself from that. Sort of step back and see it as a movie that's taking place. If we can do that, yes. If we can come to that level of realization, then living in the cave is not going to be necessary. The secluded place can be achieved by us even in the modern environment. The secluded place means we do not let the environment pull the mind away from concentration on the self. Concentration on the object of this human form of life. And we've gone over this. The object of the human form of life is not simply to have the best facility for animalistic propensities. Eating, sleeping, mating, defending. Every living entity in the material world strives for these. Eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. Everyone is, that's what's necessary for existence. We should be careful in coming to the human form of life that we don't simply live the life of an intellectualized animal. We can sleep longer on softer beds in 1800 thread sheets or whatever that is. I don't even know. Uh, on the softest of, of, of arrangements, and we can have the most uh, exquisite foodstuffs. We can go from one restaurant to another, one night from another, to this one and to those on the weekends. It's getting more expensive in this economy, so maybe you can go out to eat once a week. But eating, so we're doing it better. The animal only eats according to the dictates of the body, the human life, we can let our mind dictate, ah, tonight I want Chinese and tomorrow I want, the, you know, some other cuisine. Eating, sleeping, mating, defending, mating. So much so that I want to mate, so much so that eh, maybe the wife one night and maybe some, some concubine some other night. Whereas we notice the animals... They're controlled, for the most part, except certain species. Some, some of them, they only, they, only have, they only mate once a year. Some only mate once a lifetime. Some mate continually, like the pigeon, a hundred times a day. And de defending? Well, we all have to defend to eat. We have to defend our home, or we have to defend our, our city, or our county, or our state, or our nation. So, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending are there in all species of life. If we come to this form of life, this human form of life, and we simply endeavor to make those things 
the objective of, of our existence in a glorified way and think, just see, we're so much more advanced than the animals. Truly, the enjoyment is the same. The sensual pleasure is the same. What the senses are experiencing is the same from this body to their body. Sometimes their sensual experiences are greater than ours in certain ways. Certain senses of certain animals are greater than ours in certain ways. I can certainly not smell as well as my dog. When we walk in the house from the store, he's already on whatever he knows is, is the best bag of groceries. This chapter on, on the practice of yoga has to be seen in, in context. And it's important that when we were studying Bhagavad Gita, we always study in, in context. We have to see what is the practical application of these instructions according to our circumstance. It's not that we... What? Go off to a cave if we want to live a secluded life? No. But we, we may want to be careful of the association and the company that we keep. Now that also is seclusion, is it not? To take good company, religiously inclined people, people that are inclined towards spiritual life, that have a similar viewpoint as we do when it comes to the significance of self-realization and the significance of spiritual advancement in life who truly want to end the miseries of material existence and who in wanting to end their miseries of material existence and attaining that higher level of spiritual love and infusing their heart with that they become so soft-hearted that they want to give that to everyone and that's a true characteristic of a saintly person. Now, if we can come into that association, that's seclusion. That's secluding out. That's pushing out the environment that's simply interested in exploitation. That's hard to do. Except in good association. Yeah, but I mean, when you're surrounded by people, you know, you have no choice in the matter. We always have a choice in the matter. You always have a choice. You can always make it. You can always choose. You may. It's yeah, a fact. Family, oh no, it's a fact. You you can't. <laughs> we notice some, <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes the spiritualists will will be so mercifully inclined that they will stay in in, in an environment, uh, but their consciousness is always fixed on Krishna. If our consciousness is always fixed on Krishna, if we're always hankering for the highest association despite the circumstance seemingly impeding that desire, the intent in and of itself is sufficient to carry us through. It truly is. Yes, sir. And also I've been told several times just, I read a little bit that this is about change and so trying that 
trying, rather than trying to figure out how you can make the current situation um, or Krishna consciousness work around your current situation, make Krishna consciousness your your situation. Because sometimes you have to make drastic choices, and that may involve people that you're close to. And well, I also wanted to say something about that too. That your family, your spiritual family, becomes your real family in a sense. I mean, for many devotees, I think that's what happens. Um, and the material family, sometimes because there is such a kind of, um, you know, there is a, in a sense, a leaving, you know. Um, you can love those people or you know, still even be involved, but there can be kind of a, a leaving, in a sense, as your spiritual family your relationship to that spiritual family becomes strengthened. Becomes more significant in and your it life. More significant. Yeah. It, it becomes really your real family. So, you know, like you may have these biological ties, but, you know, you just see it as a karmic thing that, you know, you came into this world, you have those ties, but they may not really, you know, be a kind of a, you know, they always say blood is thicker than water. And I mean, frankly, I don't get that at all. <laughs> well, I certainly don't get that as, as the. It may be thicker in water for those that are attached to the family <laughs> life, but uh, as we, as we begin to tread tread the spiritual path, the spiritual sangha and the, and the relationships between devotees, those truly become the most relishable. Right. Now we note in Srila Rupa Goswami's Upadeshamrita that he gives he gives an indication of what is what is the Interrelationships between those that are practicing spiritualists, that are nourishing and satisfying. The Dati Pratigrinati Guyam Akiti Pushti. We associate with devotees in six loving exchanges. We give gifts and we accept gifts. Those gifts may be material, but nothing that a devotee gives us should ever be seen as material, and nothing that we that we accept is on the material plane. There's a deeper thing. So I mean, if we're given a flower garland, if we're offered obeisances, if we're these the, these things are also giving and taking between devotees. So this offering of gifts and accepting of gifts, this. Offering of prashadam and the acceptance of prashadam. And the offering of sincere inquiry, confidential inquiry as to spiritual <coughs> advancement, and the giving of guidance according to our realization. So these exchanges are there. These exchanges, and they're exchanges of love on the in the on the spiritual platform. The dati pratigrinati guyam akyati pritchti bhokte bojayate jaiva sadvidim priti lakshanam. Offering gifts in charity, accepting charitable gifts, revealing one's mind in confidence and inquiring confidentially, accepting prashadam and offering prashadam are the six symptoms of love shared by one devotee and another. And we note in the next verse, Srila Rupa Goswami goes on to give us direction as to 
the discrimination required in that giving and taking. What that means is, let's take for example, confidential instruction. When, it real, when it's real serious, we generally take the inquiry to an older, more advanced devotee. Or if we have good fortune and can be in the, in the association of guru, we may ask our guru. It becomes, we may even have to hold on to that question for some time until he comes because we feel it's that important in our spiritual life. Or maybe we inquire from somebody and it doesn't satisfy that, that, that need on our part. We discriminate in taking good counsel. We discriminate in giving gifts. We don't offer gifts to just anybody. We want to make sure that uh, there is some, some true, something truly there. Even in the community of devotees, there is some discrimination in this give and take. Except in Prashadam. Prashadam we give freely to everybody. <laughs> and we accept Prashadam. It's all purifying. The Dati Pratigrimati. The practical application of this chapter, which concentrates so much on the, on the practice of the Stanga Yoga and controlling the, the mind and senses, how do we practically do these things? And that's, that's where good guidance under the direction of the spiritual master is so important for us. How do we apply this today? How do we control the mind and senses? How do, we, how do we make the mind our friend and not our enemy? How do we, what do we do in the modern world when we can't run off to a cave? Or if we have to live with our family and take care of them? How do we do that and still remain Krishna conscious in the world? Can we still make spiritual advancement and still bring the mind and senses under control in this environment? Yes. And if we can, how? Well, we have a simple formula. We know where to start, the foundation. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. We have to become regulated and fixed in daily associating with God. We have to be in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that that's one of my old hippie songs? In the presence of the Lord. We have to be there. Be there now. We can always chant. We need to do it every day. It's a purification of the heart. And when the environment imposes upon us in such a way that it's, it's difficult from time to time, we need to take shelter of Krishna. And we can, of course, come to see Krishna in, in, in the Murti form and, and, and offer some prayer. Now we get into some detailed instructions here, and the question is, how much of it applies today? One should hold one's body, neck, and head erect in a straight line, and stare steadily at the tip of the nose. Nama, when was the last time you stared steadily at the tip of your nose? Because <laughs> of all yogic practitioners, in this Sangha, you're the topmost. <laughs> When it comes to this, when's the last time you stared at the tip of your nose? Well, in certain postures, you use that. You do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is actually an Ashtanga yoga 
system therapy. Do you teach people? Um, at a higher level. Yeah. How would we? How would we? Without these enlightening comments from the kitchen, I could not speak one evening intellectually without this. Input. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thus, with an unagitated, subdued mind, devoid of fear, completely free from sex life. One should meditate upon me within the heart and make me the ultimate goal of life. Thus practicing control, constant control of the body, mind, and activities, the mystic transcendentalist, his mind regulated, attains to the kingdom of God or the abode of Krishna by cessation of material existence. I'll close just by making one simple, <coughs> pointing out one simple thing that we need to keep in mind. This gift of Krishna consciousness is so uniquely valuable. And the precedents that are put forth for devotees to practice are on such a high level of spiritual realization that it's truly, for the most part, incomprehensible to even the great Vedantists and the great yogis in various traditions. So over the next month, every day, we should chant these prayers to Damodar, and we should bring them in our heart. And what do we hear? What is there in this prayer? How can you come to a platform of prayfulness where you just want to serve Krishna and freedom or liberation, as it's known, is of little or no significance. Such a high level of spirituality Imagine loving Krishna in his form of Damodar, being bound by Mother Yasoda, who is the most famous of devotees, who had the ability, with her determined effort in her practice, and this is brought out by Vishwanath Chakravarti, like we discussed, her practice was one of those two fingers. It got her half the way there. And what was the other? Mercy. Krishna's mercy. He's so merciful. Of all his different characteristics, one characteristic reigns supreme. His loving mercy to his devotees who are making an effort to advance in spiritual life. I'll stop there. Any questions, comments? Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, ask, or I don't know, but you were talking about uh, Mother Shoda and um, Damar. Damodar. Yeah, and, and how they were bound. Uh, she bound him, and, and the only reason why she was able to bind him was because there was a, a loving exchange between the two. Mm -hmm. And when you said that, there was a feeling inside of me. Like I had a feeling. So 
when you start to get a feeling like that, that's not, we really can't express it in words, is that, that's something that's kind of entering, and is that like an internal kind of, what, what is that? I'll explain it in, in a couple different ways real quickly, because it's a very deep subject. We're talking about actually coming to a stage of, of an appreciation of, a deeper appreciation, which is above our sensual experience, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about experiencing something on the, on the transcendental plane. Uh, an emotion, a spiritual emotion. Spiritual emotions come about generally in our beginning stage. They come about as a, they come about as a benediction in the association of the, of the spiritual master or advanced devotees. It's, uh, it's sometimes explained, it's like um, a moonbeam. Like we have this Sangha, and, and you know, um, uh, although we may not yet be qualified to, to have spiritual emotion because our senses are so polluted at this stage, they're not yet fully purified. Uh, but still, uh, Krishna is always, uh, Krishna and Krishna's devotees are always extending some mercy. Uh, we, we pick that up. It's the moon rays coming from the hearts of Krishna's devotees. We should always keep in in perspective that's our highest that's our highest goal. We want to come unless we come to a stage of spiritual emotion, then what's going to drag us away from sensual enjoyment? Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, what second chapter, Isaya Vinivartante, fifty ninth verse. We must have a higher taste. We want to cultivate that spiritual emotion, but we, we must do it according to the proper prescription. So, and we need to come gradually to the stage of, when we come to the stage of, of pure, pure nista, faith, the next stage is a taste develops and then then there's some appreciation from Krishna and then true spiritual emotion blossoms. And we should know where we are on the path. And we should, uh, if we're, if some other, <coughs> you'll always notice that there'll be glimmers. That's what I like to call them. You know, you'll be reading Shastra and then all of a sudden it's like, this, you're overtaken like with a deeper understanding or you're overtaken with, with a sense and then it fades mm -hmm. it goes away or you'll be in the association of guru I can remember and I can always remember as I mentioned Prabhupada came when I first saw Prabhupada I walked into the airport everybody there all the devotees were just overtaken with spiritual emotion they, they, they all cried out together they openly wept together when they saw Prabhupada that his heart just melted everybody and they weren't qualified to taste that kind of spiritual emotion yet so I, I it's, they're glimmers along the way they, they kind of they give us a, they give us some indication of what's going to happen when the real sun of our spiritual practice begins to rise and we should relish them and we should pray to Krishna as we chant every week. What do we chant? Lord Chaitanya is singing out. What's he saying? When will my 
eyes be decorated with tears of love? When will my whole body be overwhelmed with this spiritual emotion? We aspire for it, and along the way, yes, Krishna's going to give you glimmers. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. They may be intellectual glimmers. Those, I, those come when we read all of a sudden things. You've read it again and again, and then all of a sudden, wow, a little light goes off. A little, oh, I see what's, what's <laughs> being said there. And then you'll go back two years later and read the same thing again, and a different intellectual appreciation will be stirred in your heart. That's Krishna consciousness. And Krishna is so merciful that sometimes um, he will, he comes in a dream. Yes. Like, well, what kind of fear to be a dream? Um, and you know, it might be one of his associates or one of his shaktis. But you, you'll know it's not a dream. That happens. Any spiritual thing like that, yeah. If you Especially if the guru comes to you in a dream. It's not a not an ordinary thing. It's very 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 nice. So yes, these glimmers will be there. Aspire for the day where your whole life is. We notice, like in Lord Chaitanya, teachings of Lord Chaitanya. Uh, you know, Chaitanya Charitamrita. At the end of his life, Lord Chaitanya was continually overwhelmed with transcendental emotion. His associates had to continually tend to his spiritual emotions and they would chant verses to to enhance those emotions when would that day be ours huh thank you so very much how do you